Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening on whatever date this is for you. This is <laughs> the Silmarillion Film Project back in action. This is Trish Lambert, co-host for the uh, for the podcast, and Dave Kale, our usual announcer, is not with us. He is Netflixing. He's, um, you know, as some of you may know, he's got a job with Netflix, and he is hitting his first major deadline. <laughs> yes. So we wish him well, and... He's been burning the midnight oil, apparently, So, uh, yep. and probably is still burning it, I would imagine. So anyway, so I am here today with the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, to do the next session of Silmarillion Film Project. Let's take it away, Corey. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. And uh, uh, delighted to be back here for session number three of our fourth season of Silm Film. You know, I have to admit, I'm feeling like super warm and fuzzy about Silm Film this morning because... Uh, after just my experience this past weekend. Last weekend, I was at Magnolia Moot in North Carolina, um, meeting with a bunch of our wonderful uh, uh, Signum and Mythgard folks and uh, 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 fantasy fans down there in uh, down down in the south. And it was really cool. I just like did a lot of reflecting. We talked about film film a good bit. Uh, Marie Prosser, that is Myth Lewin from the discussion boards, was there, and she gave a talk about film film, kind of introducing the concept and sort of talking about some of the challenges of film film. And um, it was talking with her. I get to I got to sit down with her, and we had a we had a we had a long talk about film film, doing some planning for season four, uh, and we. Um, I just I just kind of ended up talking about it with several people down there and you know just sort of spending uh some time reflecting on how much I love this podcast. I mean, man, uh more and more, you know, I have to admit that when I first thought of it, it was well not exactly a gimmick. I mean, I knew it would be f- cool. I knew I knew it would be like legitimately cool. It wasn't just a uh, uh, gimmick suggests that there's something sort of, you know, uh, uh, dishonest or something about it. And, and that's, of course, not what I mean. But I thought it was kind of a fun idea. But I, I, I just I thought of it primarily as like just a hook to discuss the Silmarillion more, you know, which. Um, but what I've been discovering, you know, what I've been kind of realizing and embracing lately is how much I have come to love film film as like a creative outlet you know i never kind of saw that coming actually uh i um uh i i i have been really really loving this project and it is uh it is the kind of thing you know uh i don't i mean i'm not really a creative writer at least i don't anymore consider myself a creative writer but of course there was a time as i know there will be many people who will relate to this you know, when I was uh, when I was a teenager, you know, I was I wrote all the time and that's how I identified myself. I would have considered that my core identity uh, was as a writer. And I totally put that aside a long time ago. I haven't really tried to write anything since like college, basically, um, <clears throat> which is, you know, when as happens, I think with many people, I sort of discovered I wasn't really that good a writer. Uh, but. <laughs> anyway, just the, the the that's one of the chief things that discouraged me. Um, however, the you know the 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 way in which I have come to enjoy this again, not just as a, a, a discussion project, but really as a creative project, has kind of taken me by surprise. And as I say, after some 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 reflection on that uh, over this weekend, it, it just makes me extra excited to uh, uh, to come back and uh, talk about this stuff with you more. Um, well, now, wait, 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 one of the things that I do remember early on when we were first, when this was like a, you know, a little egg, right? this right. podcast, you did say to me, 
I really would like this to become a community-owned project, yes. you yes. know, and how can we do that? You know, how are we going to, and, it, you know, we didn't really know, and look at us now. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and the the way in which this is, uh, you know, the, the kind of collaboration that this has come to be uh, with, uh, you know, the community who has been a part of mm-hmm. these discussions on our discussion board is really neat. Um you know, one of the things that I was kind of learning, I, I uh, uh, in my discussions uh, with uh, Marie this past weekend, one of the things that I was sort of getting from her was a little bit more of a uh, of an understanding of sort of the culture of our you know film film community on the discussion boards, and um, and it's just it's it's awesome to hear you know to see the way in which people have come and are really uh, you know have really committed to are really loving this as a creative mm-hmm. project themselves and. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting. One of the thing, one of the things that was most interesting to me to learn, really, is that <clears throat> I have to admit that I did always assume that the film film community, if we succeeded to build a film film community, that it would be primarily cons- it would be like sort of a niche subsection of like the podcast audience. I mean, that was kind of a, a natural assumptions. I think assumption I think to make as right. this was like a podcast series that I was starting. So, right. you know, <clears throat> but. The fact that it has apparently, you know, what what uh, you know, what uh, Marie tells me is that you know, real a lot of the core um, uh, people in the you know creative community that are a part of this are not even really listeners to the podcast um, as a whole. Wow, which I think is awesome. Uh, so I just wanted to take a moment to say uh, for those of you who are not listeners to my podcast, but patiently listen to these episodes so you can hear what crazy things the executive producers have to say about this stuff before you go on and carry on the hard work of the creative process. Thanks for joining us. It's awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Uh, <laughs> and I want you to know how much, uh, how much I value and you know, how much we value your, your presence and participation in this whole process. It's really, really cool. Um, Anyway, and Tony, I totally agree. Obviously, the way that it illuminates this whole process illuminates other writings like The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, And not only the way in which it, it, you know, discussing these things through not only kind of helps me to understand the Silmarillion better, but it does really shine light, Tony. I agree. It helps me to see the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit material in a new light. Um, And also, I feel like it's, I don't know, I, I... being involved in you know what I increasingly have come to call a creative engagement with a story, not just a, a readerly reception of a story, um, but uh, when you're engaging creatively with something in the way that Tolkien did all the time, like the Lord of the Rings is creative engagement, um, you know, or fan fiction if you like, uh, with uh, you know of like the stuff that Tolkien did is scholarly work. Um, but anyway, it's it's really it's uh, engaging with Tolkien's work creatively. I feel in some ways it kind of helps me to get sort of closer to Tolkien because it's what he did. You know, it's what he loved doing um, with other works. Right. So it's I don't know. It's kind of fun. And Tony, I agree. It's really interesting to integrate the non-canonical writings. I wouldn't call it second guessing Christopher Tolkien because I totally respect that. I mean, I'm not second guessing Christopher Tolkien in the same way that like you second guess a baseball manager after a loss, right? Saying like, oh, in like that was a stupid choice. He shouldn't have done that. Um, I don't have any problems with the choices that Christopher Tolkien made in general. Um, I'm sure they're 
we could find individual examples of choices I have a problem with. But in general, I don't I don't object to the choices that Christopher Tolkien made when he published The Silmarillion. I think it's a completely defensible approach uh, to uh, uh, to to the posthumous publication of the Silmarillion, which presented some very serious problems, and, and he did it. Uh, and, and again, I think that the way that he did it, it's hard to get up in arms, I think, uh, about that. However, the choice that he made was to leave aside, you know, to, to like, he chose not to do the, to do the work that would be required in integrating some of his father's later ideas. You know, Tolkien had all these ideas later in life, which would have required some pretty major changes to the, uh, to the Silmarillion story that he had written. Um, and he didn't get a chance to do those. And in general, Christopher Tolkien said, I'm not going to do that. Right? I'm not going to go back. If I have to like rewrite a huge section of the Silmarillion in order to accommodate this idea, I'm not going to do that because then it will really, it will be too much of me and too little of my father. Right. So again, totally respectable decision on Christopher Tolkien's part. But it's kind of fun to do, though, right? I mean, to sort of take some of these later ideas and uh, and say, no, we really want to think these through and we really want to integrate these things. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And, Tony, you're right. We do also get to uh, uh, to go back. There are some things that, uh, that Christopher... Um, said that he felt were mistakes in retrospect uh, and that he, he, he would have changed. So yeah, we do, we, we do get a chance to do some of those things too. But again, to me, that's sort of a, uh, that's sort of small compared to the much bigger projects of, uh, uh, of kind of taking and working some of these things through um, after the fact. Anyway, anyway, so sorry, brief editorial here at the beginning about how much I love this project and uh, uh, and how excited I am uh, to continue through with uh, with season four here. So, the topic of today's uh, session is the frame narrative, uh, and the frame narrative was something that we decided on at the very beginning, and which I still really love the idea. Of. And just a brief reminder as to why the heck we do this and what on earth is going on here. The idea was to have a frame for a couple different reasons. One was that we wanted to give a kind of point of contact. One of the the point of this of, of doing the Silmarillion, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the part of the concept of doing an adaptation of the Silmarillion. Um, is not just because the stories in the Silmarillion are awesome uh, and would make really good TV. Uh, the point also is to... We want to show the way in which the First Age connects with the Third Age. That's really important, I think, uh, in the bigger picture of the whole story. And in some ways also, it's kind of... I don't know, it's kind of true to... Um, the process, right? Tolkien's process, true to the birth of these stories, in the sense that um, th- the way in which it is the putting down of roots into the older mythology that really gave the Lord of the Rings the depth that it had. And anyway, I, and I just want to, um, I want to establish that connection. I want to make sure that we always are, we're encouraging people to kind of be looking back and forth. I also, part of my the thing I think that which initially suggested the idea of the frame narrative um, is 
to kind of, it's another one of those examples of sort of fulfilling one of Tolkien's ideas, right? Uh, you know, Tolkien's initial concept for the Silmarillion was that it would they would be stories that are told to a later narrator uh, in a, you know, in a frame. So there's the frame story of the narrator. And of course, here I'm thinking of the Book of Lost Tales, the narrator, the human narrator who goes to, uh, you know, Toleresia and meets the elves and learns their history and brings that those stories that he hears and then puts together back um, to uh, uh, back to the world, right? And that's how they, that's how we get them basically. That was kind of part of the the initial concept uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. But again, I think here the important concept, um, which we can see there from that very beginning of Tolkien's attempt to write this kind of mythology um, it's essentially tied up with that from the start was this idea of taking these stories of the ancient days and bringing them into the later world, right? So that connection between the old and the new, um, the way in which the, 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 it is important to the new world for it to be grounded in the stories of the old world. I mean, those kinds of things go back to the very beginning. Um, and so I really was, uh, was excited to see if we could, if we could work with that, if we could play with that. Um, so anyway, that's the, those were those were those are some of the things. Now, as far as the frame itself is concerned, um, we've oh here I forgot to do announcements. Darn it! <laughs> Just jumping into the frame. Wait in one second, I will get back to the concepts of the frame that we've used. I interrupt this discussion briefly to do the announcements that I forgot to do, uh, and only two quick announcements. Uh, first. Uh, uh, TextMoot is coming up January 19th, um, but more importantly, well, more urgently, rather, uh, the call for papers deadline for TextMoot is actually tomorrow, November 17th. So if you want to submit a paper for TextMoot, definitely get right on that. Uh, TextMoot is going to be great. It's going to be down in Waco, Texas, January 19th, the next of our regional moots. Uh, which have all just been absolutely fantastic, wonderful experiences. Uh, So I hope if you're anywhere... Yeah, you submitted? I submitted. Awesome. I Good. Did. I was yep. I was hoping you would uh you would submit. Yep, Looking I forward did. to seeing you I there, did. Trish. Awesome. Yep, yep. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Um yeah, so um uh so text moot gonna be great. I uh, hope you can uh people can be involved with that. So please do keep that in mind. And the Mythgard Movie Club. So Mythgard Movie Club is our weekly dis- our weekly, monthly discussion. They meet mo- once a month. They discuss both new and old films, uh, of fantasy and science fiction films. Um, really uh, great to have a place where we're sort of dedicated to talking about films. We don't get to do that much uh, in the uh, Mythgard Academy series, but it's a, it's a really great outlet. Um, they're doing voting for which films they cover during the course of 2019. So go to Mythgard.org slash MCC 2019 and it will get you to the uh, uh, to the the uh, voting page to uh, nominate and cast your votes for um, particular movies so all right those are my announcements now back to the frame so um, Hakan did did a really good and by the way I just would like to so in my like retrospective uh, and affectionate uh, uh, <laughs> mood that I am in thinking about film film this week. Uh, I want to particularly thank Hakan for all the work that uh, he has done. You know, Hakan has been uh, you know, uh, Marie and Nick have been, you know, leading our, our uh, uh, you know, script discussions and things and so they, you know, they've gotten a fair bit of uh, of, 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 of mic time, you know, and uh, um, 
uh, sort of glory uh, during the course of this process. Hakan has been such a, uh, a rock throughout this whole process. Really, really crucial uh, uh, to the whole thing. So just, Hakan, I just wanted to thank you so much for all the work that you've done. I really, really appreciate it. Um, anyway, so Hakan provides this excellent sort of synopsis of where we've been, right? Uh, he says, we've used the frame in a couple of ways, moving from a storyteller model to a frame that is a mirror or set in contrast to the main story. Um, and the extremes of that were in season one and season three, right? Season one, we had young Aragorn and Rivendell actually being instructed. So we had the early, you know, with the early stuff, uh, the, the, how the world was created and the, uh, the, the, the initial conflict between the Valar and stuff being essentially taught uh, to Aragorn by Elrond in Rivendell. And then in season three, we had the teenage Aragorn uh, storyline where he was kind of uh, uh, where his story was being set in parallel to essentially in parallel to Feanor's story um, uh, sort of showing the the sort of the parallels and the anti-parallels there and the sort of the lessons that um, that Aragorn was was using but we had very little connection explicit connection that is we did not have a real teller of stories you know who so we had Elrond who was telling these stories to to young Estelle in season one in season three we were just kind of running the stories in parallel um Hakan says the first model tends to become a kind of children's book presentation which I think most of us want to avoid the second type is more difficult though if it's very dramatic it risks stealing focus from the main story or making things confusing and a less dramatic frame could feel boring Yes. Um, I think of the three seasons we've done, I think season two most interestingly walked the middle line here, where we had a story, which was the uh, the story of Arwen in Lothlorien and her kind of, you know, existential deliberations about where elves belong as she is being confronted with the whole dynamic of it's the late third age and elves are leaving uh, Middle-earth. But of course, she, you know, we, we, we she's asking, like, is that even the right thing? Are we right to do this? Um, uh, which, of course, has a, a, an important relevance for Arwen. We know later on this is obviously pre-meeting Aragorn, Arwen. Um, so there's not really a question of joining him and becoming mortal yet, but of course we're sort of, for, for, we were foreshadowing that uh, in the frame. And there I think we did have a kind of middle ground where it wasn't just like we had like the lecturer and the story listener, right? Uh, uh, like we did in season one. But we also still had like actually encountering people telling stories who were there, right? You know, we had Celeborn, who could tell the stories from Quivian, and we had Goadriel, who could tell the stories um, uh, from Valinor. Um, so, I, th- there I think we did, uh, we succeeded more, I think, in, in kind of a middle ground. And I, I'm willing to agree that the sort of the two extremes of those models, the, the season one and the season three might be too extreme, but I would give one caveat. I'm not sure I totally agree about the uh, sort of children's book presentation. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, of course, uh, for it to be that way. Uh, but I don't think that's inescapable at all. I mean, again, like that's that's the model. Um, that's the model in the Book of Lost Tales. You know, the model of the Book of Lost Tales is like the dude who goes around and has lots of other people tell him stories. And I don't think that that has to become to like uh, well first of all I guess I'm trying to unpack a little bit what children's book presentation exactly means to um, 
too preachy, too sort of simplistic. Um, I, I don't think that like somebody being told stories need necessarily be very infantilizing, um, either to the character or to the audience necessarily. Um, again, I, I kind of like the Arwen frame as a model in the sense that something was happening. So it wasn't just like, I am the learner and you are the teacher and, and I am in you and and let's just like hear, you, you know, so we'll start every episode with the, the beginning of, um, your lecture, right? And then you, and then you launch into your story. Um, that's of course not how we did season one anyway, but, um, uh, but still, um, you know, we weren't doing that. There was a real plot, but the real plot was simply Arwen wanting to know, right? Ar- Arwen herself trying to, uh, solve this and figure out a problem. And of course she comes to an answer, which is not necessarily the same answer that everybody in the season comes to. Right. So it's not just like she's being used as a kind of artifice to draw attention to the moral of the story or something like that. Uh, it doesn't quite work like that either. Um, but as I say, I like the, the sort of, um, balance between, um, uh, the sort of balance between, there being something that's happening in the frame, like there's an actual plot arc of the of the frame, but it doesn't have to be a dramatic, like a big dramatic, exciting plot arc. Um, again, like that's the thing that season two and that the Book of Lost Tales have in common. The thing that primarily drives, like the core of the plot arc um, of the frames in both the Book of Lost Tales and in our season two, Arwen frame, was the desire of the protagonist to know, right? Um, uh, So, and that I think is fine. I think it's a good model uh, in general. Um, So I would like, my goal for the frame would be to shift it back a little bit more towards season two um, and to kind of try to find that middle ground uh, again. Because, of course, again, another thing that at least conceptually the Arwen frame accomplished was drawing attention to the sort of central theme of the season, right? Again, not not in a... a sort of a crude or belaboring way. Um, but it, it helps to foreground, like, this is the thing that's at issue. Um, when you hear the people in the frame talking about these sort of central concerns, it's, um, it's easier to, uh, kind of stay focused in on, um, um, on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. This yeah. is really embarrassing. I'm having a complete blackout. What's our frame for season three? That, remember that was uh, Aragorn and meeting Hamilcar, the son of uh, oh, right, 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 of right, right, uh, right, right, right. and yeah, all that Can't stuff. Can't believe I forgot that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and hey, Hakan. Yeah, I see your uh, posts on the Twitch uh, uh, channel. I I do follow those as well. Um, uh, I, I tend the discussion tends to focus more on the go-to webinar one because it's real time and the twitch is delayed. So, like, if I ask a question, I want to get a response and I want to have to wait for like thirty seconds. Uh, but um, anyway, yeah. But I see it. I see it, and I know there are some other people here too. Okay. So, uh, anyway, so that's I, so 
I think finding that balance, finding I, it seems to me that you know if I if I therefore had to list like what are the most important things that a frame should accomplish for our story. Um, high on that list would be spotlighting, and not necessarily belaboring, of course, but spotlighting the primary themes and concerns of the seasons, serving as a, as is as in that way a kind of framing thematically, therefore, as well as you know, sort of practically um, or narratively, uh, the the Silmarillion stories that we're going through in that season. Um, I think it also helps to uh, establish some of the kinds of parallels that we are talking about. I mean, this has come up quite a bit, um, and I I think it's only going to come up more as we move through. Tolkien's imagination fundamentally goes to these kinds of, you know, what I have in the past called typological relationships, right? Where you've got one story that happens in the later uh, story, which is very much like the story that happened in the earlier story. We get these very direct parallels, and the same stories kind of recapitulating themselves again and again over time. Um, that's a, a strong feature of Tolkien's storytelling, and I personally love that feature of Tolkien's storytelling, and I really want to integrate that element uh, into uh, the our Silmarillion adaptation. Um, and the frame, again, I think provides us some interesting opportunities to do that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool, cool. So um, I, I, I agree with uh, D- David Atlee's point. He says, uh, he says he'd actually love to use the children's story model at some point. Uh, having Sam tell the story of a nine-fingered Frodo in the Ring of Doom to little Eleanor would be charming, uh, and I'm sure we could find a way to make it interesting. Yeah, David, of course, I am immediately tempted by the comic potential of that, right? You know, uh, I, I can imagine, you know, having a, having a frame story in which, like, basically have the primary action of the episode be, like, some of the most tragical, horrifying, and, uh, uh, you know, and, like, soul-searing content, and then have, but frame that, like, with, like, Sam telling his kids right in a uh, a way which you know doesn't pull punches, but and it, it just it would it would be just be kind of funny to sort of set that up. Uh, I would be hard to, it would be hard for me to resist at all points uh, the comedy potential of that. I think, but um, but storyteller Sam, I, I do think that that needs to uh, um, that needs to happen uh, sooner or later, sooner or later. But I'm th- I mean, right now we've been we've been maintaining. Um, we've been maintaining our frames as the um, cr- we've been maintaining the chronology of our frames. Right now, the, the you know our frames have been in the third age in that time between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. That's that's kind of so far the general framework uh, of our frames, uh, chronological framework of our frames. Um, I'm kind of thinking we would probably want to say it would be interesting. Um, to continue the frames when we get to third age material uh, to shift that forward and be doing post Lord of the Rings frames for the Lord of the Rings material uh, that's where I, I feel like that would really come in um, but it would be I think I well, we'll see at what point we decide we want to transition but I'm really kind of thinking that we're going to want to um, stay in that you know pre War of the Ring era uh, throughout our, you know, whole first age stuff here. But 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Marie, I agree that there's a certain amount of spoiler content, right, in the frame. Um, and that is, as Marie's pointing out, right, that like story, having storyteller Sam uh, used as a frame in um, The Lord of the Rings, like, gives away the fact that like Sam's going to survive right and that's true but I'm okay with that actually um I don't find that piece of like mystery like in as much as is Sam going to live or not a mystery uh in the book like giving that away I think is um I think is fine actually um uh, I'm not uh I'm not too troubled uh I'm not too troubled by that I mean at the end of the day it's not that much different than, you know, telling a story from a first-person perspective, right? Which gives you a pretty shrewd idea that the narrator probably survives. I mean, there have been authors who have played with that, obviously, but, um, uh, but yeah. Yeah, no, Marie, I agree. There are definitely some, um, some things that we can do in the frame to kind of manipulate the whole spoiler element, right? Um, uh, Frodo's absence, I agree, Marie, uh, is um, one of the biggest ones there, right? Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, now, Hakan, I agree, we could go a little bit further down that road and say um, it could be Sam's kids telling the story. You know, yes. Um, uh, thinking of sort of the status that... Um, uh, you know, the fair barons had in later years, right? Um, that would make for some interesting telling there. Um, I could definitely see that. But fortunately, we'll have several seasons to choose from there um, uh, when we're telling those bits of the story. Anyway. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, Phil says, would this fit in with the discarded epilogue? Essentially, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to bring in the epilogue directly, but yeah, the epilogue concept uh, from The Lord of the Rings, the Sam telling uh, stories to his kids thing, uh, would... Um, well, one thing you could do is have Sam tell the Hobbit story. Right, yeah. Um, and then I like the idea of a later generation with the Red Book of Westmarch telling mm-hmm. a story to children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, yep. Lots of potential there. Um, uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, but off topic. These are all <laughs> these are all distant concerns. As I think, I think we definitely want to stick to pre Lord of the Rings for all of this mm-hmm. material. I don't think we uh, we don't want to play our you know like the the fourth age hand too soon here. Um, yeah, yeah. Tony says he wants Bilbo telling that story to young Sam. Yeah, I, there's definitely an attraction there too. Though I'd be tempted to not have Bilbo as the narrator of the Bil- of the Hobbit. I mean, it's it's really tempting to do that, but I'm not sure I want to do that. want to have Bilbo actually be the narrator, you know, this, the frame narrator of the... Um, well, don't we still have the same issue there that we did with Sam telling the story of Lord of the Rings? You know, if right. he's telling the Hobbit, we know he survived. <laughs> right, yes. Yes. And But I mean, I think it would be interesting to... I mean, obviously we need to play with the multiple editions that's going to be really fun actually um uh, uh but anyway uh, uh, that's that's you know that's a concern for 15 years from now for now uh we need to um we need to focus on 
uh, we need to focus on this. And by the way, and I would add, as David Attlee was just pointing out, I actually think that Bilbo telling stories to young Sam is going to come much sooner, I think. Um, I want... I want young Gamgee uh, hearing stories about elves, or exactly as David was just suggesting. Um, you know, uh, crazy about stories of the old days he is, we are told about Sam, right? And so I want to show Sam hearing some of these stories about the old days. Um, and uh, it will be, yeah, so whether it's, um, uh, well, there are lots of there are lots of options, right? Okay. Uh, so before we move on, just one last thing, and I know we're off topic, but I have to say this because it just because you said the thing about playing with the different versions, we could even have a little Easter egg of Christopher Tolkien as a little boy, right? Wait, Bilbo, <laughs> you told it differently yesterday. Yesterday or last week, you said it was this. Gollum said this, and now you're saying you know, right? You'd have to really know your Tolkien history to to get that. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, yep. I won't think about this again for 15 years. Exactly, so. yeah. We're, so we're putting this yeah. on the, on a very distant back burner, uh, 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 a very, very slow cook. Because in the meantime, we've got a lot of first stage to cover here. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, that, that's very good. We'll, we'll definitely think about that. Um, yeah, actually now lots of people are suggesting what, what Bilbo could tell young Sam. That, at least I agree, is more immediately well immediately he says only like five years from now um uh uh, is suggesting maybe the uh the story of the third kinslaying that is the 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 you know the the destruction of the settlement around uh the bay of balar um marie suggests the tale of gilgalad which is certainly an attractive option thinking of sam's recitation of the of that poem um david had suggested maybe gondolin and the fall of gondolin um, I, any of those could, as long as it's about elves, I think it could work. Um, the only thing I would say is it would have to have, it would have to have that quality which inspires the sort of awe that we see Sam having, right? Um, but <clears throat> anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, let's, um, let's keep going. All right, so specific concrete suggestions for uh, Season 4, friend. Um, we had two suggested plans. The second plan was about uh, Bilbo in the Shire uh, learning the history of the elves uh, with Lobelia's theft of his silver spoons standing in for the Silmarils and the Kinslaying. Now, as we just, as I was just saying, that one of the, you know, the primary function that I would like for... Uh, 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 the primary function I would like for the frame to have is to uh, to help us to really spotlight the overall themes of the season. And if uh, um, <laughs> so, if the theme of the season is going to be reconciliation and forgiveness, um, you know, the idea of having Bilbo and the Sackville Bagginses be at the core of that is is kind of funny. But I'm not sure it isn't too funny, right? Uh, that is, like, I wouldn't want to make a farce of it. And that it would seem a little farcical, uh, you know, to have, like, Bilbo holding, like, deep resentment about the theft of his silver spoons and stuff. Um, honestly, it kind of feels to me that, like, the Bilbo in the Shire suggestion for the frame of this season 
uh, is, I don't know, perhaps born out of desperation that we've kind of wanted to bring Bilbo into the frame for a long time. Like from the beginning, we've wanted, we've wanted Bilbo to be a, a frame narrator and we keep promising ourselves we're going to get there and we keep never doing it. Um, so I, I think to me that that's kind of what I'm hearing there. I'm kind of hearing, gosh, I really want to have Bilbo in the Shire be the frame at last. Let's think of a way we can make this work. And I'm not saying that we couldn't make it work. But I don't... Uh, I, I, this doesn't seem to me the moment, especially in light of the wonderful suggestion uh, that Zephan 12 was making. Uh, Zephan is so smart, has made so many wonderful suggestions in exploring the Lord of the Rings as well, and says, what if we were to follow someone in Erebor slash Dale slash the Woodland Realm shortly after the Battle of Five Armies? Love love this idea. This is absolutely perfect. Um, I hadn't thought of this at all. I mean, we've been thinking of these between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings plot lines, and I hadn't even considered this sort of greater Erebor region angle. Um, this is, like, almost indescribably perfect. Um, uh, Mike, uh, Amy's Revenge, says uh, maybe even Thranduil, Bard, and Dan in their cups, telling tales standing an overnight vigil over Thorin to express themes of forgiveness, working past grievances and rebuilding. Uh, yeah, something like that. Again, this doesn't have to be a one-off incident, I think. I don't think we need to have, like, this one meeting uh, between the bunch of them in which, like, a number of stories get told so that, like, we're basically sort of stretching out this one single incident or single meeting over the course of the whole season. Um, you know, having each frame moment be like, oh, yeah, and do you remember the time when? Um, you know, we could do that. Um, but I don't think we need to do that. Uh, I think this is a, as soon as I heard this suggestion, I was like, boom! I mean, it was just blowing up in my mind. There's so many things that we can do. Um, I really want so so first of all um, obviously with the theme of reconciliation that's really really rich here right because on the one hand of course things are reconciled at the end of the battle of five armies right the battle of five, five armies kind of does the job but we can't forget about the fact that there are literally shots fired between the dwarves and the elves and the men before the goblins come in, right? Gandalf stops them in mid-charge as they're... But they've, they've like, arrows have been shot on both sides. Um, it is almost certain that there are, like, you know, dwarves who were killed by elves before the Battle of the Five Armies began. And that's, um, you know... Yes, the Battle of Five Armies happened and it kind of solved problems, but, like, you... We, we know how dwarves are, right? There have to be dwarves living in Erebor who are still bearing a grudge for the like their kinsman who was killed by an elf by elf arrows before the Battle of Five Armies began. You know, like that's got to be a thing. Um, and uh, at the same time, um, and then of course, needless to say, there's still the whole imprisonment thing. I mean, remember, so remember Thorin's open grudge, right? You know, his remembering the Elven King with, uh, 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 with, with, with little friendship there at the gates, right? Um, and how he doesn't want to talk to the Elven King at all, uh, and feels kind of upset for what he considers wrongful imprisonment, which, you know, he kind of has a case. I can see the Elven King's point, but, you know, I can easily see Thorin's point as well. Um, Thorin's dead and everything is kind of forgotten, and Dan does not personally have the kind of um, uh, the kind of uh, grudge 
that um, uh, that Thorin had. I mean, you know, Diana's never seen the inside of the the Elf King's prison, um, but um, anyway, there are still plenty. There are still others who have. Right? There's still plenty of survivors who have, and it would not be hard for us to choose one or two members of uh, uh, Thorin's company, right? Who still remember the Elven King with small love, right? Um, and again, thinking about the themes that we talked about before, I mean, it's perfect, so perfect. The themes that we talked about before, about reconciliation and forgiveness, and the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness, right? There has been reconciliation, but has there really been forgiveness between the elves and the dwarves? Um, uh you know, the elves might have agreed to sort of leave the dwarves in peace and bring their armies back home after the Battle of Five Armies, but, um, you know, do they still... Um, do they still look down on uh, the dwarves? I mean, the... the, the um, I remember the Elven King's comment to Bilbo in Chapter 16, in the th- when he says, you know, I know more perhaps about dwarves in general than you do, right? Um, And urges him not to go back. Now, he's kind of justified in this, right? He's not wrong about Thorin and how Thorin is going to react, is likely to react, right, when Bilbo comes back and and admits that he's the one who gave up the Arkenstone. Um, But at the same time, like, what lies behind that? The kind of... um, um, real looking down on dwarves and I know it's always funny to talk about looking down on dwarves but clearly in more than one sense Thranduil looks down on dwarves right um, so again it's one thing to say I will reconcile with these guys in the sense of like I will you know play nice uh, and we can kind of agree to work together um, it's a different thing for there to be real like community among them right um, and so there's lots of opportunity for tension there in um, uh, in the Erebor region and that tension providing numerous parallels um, for our season four activities um, and I think that that's really that that's really cool um, David Atley says the Hobbit gives us a gift for this frame in the person of Bard I imagine both elves and dwarves holding spectacular grudges and they can both be humbled by learning forgiveness from the men yeah um, the Bard's, ang- uh, Bard's angle on this uh, is interesting and I do agree that he uh, would be the one who would be the sort of peacekeeping force I think um, uh, I would even, by the way, see him as hosting this. Like, it would physically... The meeting would physically happen in Dale. Um, both because it'd be fun to show Dale, uh, and secondly, because, I get, like, the Elven King is not going to want to go into the mountain, not being sure if he's going to come out again, right? Are we going to do a turnabout on this whole unjust imprisonment thing, he's got to be thinking? Um, and the dwarves are going to be like, you know... Uh, I, yeah, I'm not going into. The, I'm not going through his magic doors again. Uh, so Bard would clearly host it, right? Um, uh, so, uh, so yeah. Now, one of the things though that we need, if we are going to, so, so, so several issues here. First, let's think a little bit more about a little bit more about the occasion. I think the idea of having this be. Um, so another thing I like about Mike's suggestion there is that this is a this is a sort of a commemorative moment, right? A commemorative moment of the um, 
the the battle, right? So this could be something like, mm, what would it be? Fifth year, seventh year. I kind of like seventh year um, anniversary. Um, I kind of like that because it's. I mean, we tend in the modern world to celebrate like in units of fives, right? Like the five year anniversary, the ten year anniversary, the twenty five year anniversary. Um, uh, for elves to be counting in sevens or twelves seems like it would be kind of cool. Yeah, I know. I was thinking of 12, but 12, I think, is too long. I don't know. that We, we don't want to wait until 12 because the 12-year anniversary of the Battle of Five Armies would be after Aragorn and Arwen's um, meeting, right? And I don't think we want to just totally skip over that without any... Um, yeah, exactly, Marie. I want it to be before Aragorn turns twenty. So that's why I'm thinking seven, because we he was sixteen. Didn't we have him sixteen in the in the the season three thing? So we'd just be one year later, moving still moving forward. Marie, you're right. We could decide that the dwarves memorialize sevens. Sure. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, that makes idea. sense. So so the dwarves call it. The dwarves want to hold a seven year. Uh, like a you know a, a sort of memorial. a feast and celebration, um, yeah. yeah, for the memorial for the for the seven. It's also memorializing Thorin as well, right? Yeah, yeah. For the dwarves, that would be a big part of the angle. Big. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, not that's, but everyone else would acknowledge that. And first of all, not only would they all be willing to commemorate Thorin, but. You know, I mean, it's a big moment. Like for the men of Dale, it's also an anniversary of the founding of Dale, right? And uh, true, you know, true. And, and their liberation for the uh, yeah. and for the elves, it's. I mean, you know, it was still a great victory. But for the elves, it's, it was a big economic, you know, boom. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> More exactly. wine down the river, yay! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> More wine down the river. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes, the uh, the uh, the 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 vineyard keepers of Dorwinian are are particularly celebrating. Oh yeah, the, particularly the, happy. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, can we have? If we do, it seems like it's going to be hard for us to avoid avoid drunkenness at all points, right? I mean, if this is going to be a memorial celebration. We have to have at least one frame scene in which people are getting completely sloshed, right? And would it be too much to ask <laughs> for a scene in which, I mean, I'm like kind of imagining like Bard and Thranduil and Legolas, like, uh, you know, walking down a hallway, you know, uh, sort of weaving around and singing. Uh, so I assume we're going with the Hobbit elves get drunk as opposed to the Jackson elves don't get oh, drunk. That's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. There's yeah. no justification okay, for Peter Jackson's elves don't get drunk. Right. Thing. Okay. It's just okay, absolutely good. absurd. Yeah. Um, so in that case, the week down the hall. Yeah. So be- we have them, have them staggering down a hallway singing, uh, uh, the roll, roll, rolling down the hole song. Like, <laughs> can we do that? Like heave, ho, splash, plump. Uh, uh like, like, <laughs> Like, that, that, is that too much to ask? I don't know if that's too much. Randall keeps getting the words wrong. And like, <laughs> yes. you yeah. Know, yeah, yeah, a rousing chorus of tra la 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 David. Absolutely. I yeah. and the problem is I can't get Lee Pace's Thranduil in my head in right. picturing this scene. Right with the crown. I mean, yeah. just you know, gets it hung up on a on a 
sconce or something. Yeah, the casting of <laughs> Randul is going to be really interesting. Uh, oh yeah. Oh my gosh, that's right. We'd have to cast him. We'd have to cast him. Yeah. And, and Legolas too. We we haven't cast. Yeah, Legolas we have to yet. cast Legolas. We'd have some serious long term implications for the casting of. of the, and now, oh my gosh. We could get rid of Legolas if we wanted to. I mean, Legolas could be off that's doing true. something. We just have to invent an excuse to not have Legolas on screen yeah. if we wanted that. We that's could also bring good, him yeah. in. I mean, that's you know, we could we could we we could make that choice. Um, so that itself will be an interesting discussion if we want to have like. Well, if we get somebody that, you know, we, if we get somebody with the same genes as Elijah Wood, who doesn't look any different today, <laughs> right. then, you know, we'll be good. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, we make it part of our casting call, right? All we need, right. all we need <laughs> is somebody who can promise Please not to visibly age thing. for the next 20 years. That's it. <laughs> we need to test your DNA for this part. Please spit into this little thing here. <laughs> Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Now both Tony and Marie are making the same argument simultaneously, uh, saying that since the wine, the strong wine of Dorwinian, which puts the butler and the captain of the guard to sleep, you know, uh, uh, very quickly, is designed for the king's table, then Legolas would have drink, been drinking this stuff for a really long time. So he's probably got built up a, t- a killer tolerance uh, to well, that's alcohol. True. Uh, As with Thranduil, I assume, right? Yeah, um, maybe. Not sure I buy it, actually. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the other thing is, it's like really strong for the elves. You know, do they do they water it down to sell it to men? That's a whole other topic, probably. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've seen, I can't see the name of the person who said this yet. Sometimes the names are slow to pop up, but uh, the suggestion, I'm okay with a perpetually drunk Thranduil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that could explain so oh, Marie, much. Yeah. yeah. That explains so much, exactly. actually. It really would. Um, so <laughs> now Margaret asks a very sensible question, which is, is Bilbo coming to the party? Now... We could stretch a point, and it, like, we know that Bilbo has made trips to the Lonely Mountain. Now he mentions that he, when he went, when he went, to, like when we meet him in Rivendell, he says that he, you know, when he went to the, he saw Dale again, you know, and but old Balin had gone away. I want to have Balin involved here. Um, you know, this 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 needs to be before Balin's trip out. I think um, we'll want to be planting the seeds uh, for Balin's um, uh, trip into. Uh, into Moria. Uh, in fact, like I have a little bit of a temptation to give Balin a kind of, uh, just a, a, a touch of a, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Baldur moment. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. you know, to have, uh, to have Balin, um, you know, at this, um, um, at this event, you know, basically like pledging that he's going to do it, right? Um, it doesn't happen still for a while. And I'm not saying that we want but to, to reduce Balin's trip to Moria to merely like a rash fell. Like he got drunk one night and said he would do it and then wakes up the next morning and is like, <laughs> crap, I'm stuck with this. Like, I'm not saying that I want to reduce it to that at all. Um, I'm, what I'm saying rather is to have him maybe, you know, when he, uh, his inhibitions have been reduced slightly, finally confessing his desire and, uh, and, and making a, a pledge to do it, which he's going to hold to, right? But like he, 
he's never spoken openly of it until this. This is the first time that he speaks openly of it and says that he, that it's going to happen, even though it's he knows it's not going to happen for a while. I got a couple of ideas here. Okay. First of all, I would assume that this. For, well, so so the frame that we're going to do through the entire season isn't just going to be one night. Nor would this memorial thingy be just one day, right? It would be. Right. It would stretch over some time. So we could actually develop this whole Balin thing in pieces, right? Yes. Where it becomes really clear that he's earnest about this. You know, because it crops up at different points in the frame story. The second thing is we could stretch Bilbo a different direction, which is why on earth wouldn't some dwarf show up at his door to escort him to Erebor for this big seven-year festival, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. he could have – I mean, I know in the book he he didn't go, but we could stretch it that direction to say he was escorted to Erebor specifically for this memorial. Right. And that could be – that could put him there. I don't think – Before. Before his birthday. Yeah, before the birthday. I don't think that giving Bilbo an extra trip to Erebor, you know, especially this early on. I mean, this is still so we're talking about seven years after the events yeah, of the Hobbits. Right. So it's still fifty-three years before the events of the Lord of the Rings are going to begin. So, right. I mean, the fact we don't know that much about what happened back then, right? I mean, it's right. And and as long as well, nothing like life changing show comes out, you know, when Amazon right. show comes <laughs> exactly. out, exactly. <laughs> it's not like um um. It's not like, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's not like, um, w- as long as we don't sh- like change anything, like th- this can't have a massive impact on Bilbo's life necessarily. Right. Um, yeah. And Tony is reminding me of a conversation that he and I had at Magnolia Moot this past weekend where we were talking about sort of theorizing about uh, sort of two different phases of Bilbo's life. Like the question that Tony originally asked that he and I were discussing, um, and one of the breaks uh, at Magnolia Moot was where does Bilbo get his elvish lore, right? He doesn't, there's, there doesn't seem to be much evidence that he actually visited Rivendell itself many times. Does he talk to elves in the Shire? What does he do? And so we, and then, but, and so my, my response to that was saying, I don't see any reason to think why Bilbo might not have gone to Rivendell multiple times. Well, we don't know for a fact that he didn't. Um, but I did add that the one odd thing about that is that um, he, um, uh, like Frodo has obviously never been to Rivendell, right? So if popping over to Rivendell once every few years was a standard part of Bilbo's, you know, life, you'd think that he'd have taken Frodo once or twice, at least, right, in the time that Frodo's been living with him. Um, and this led Tony and I to speculate about uh, the possibility of there being really kind of two phases of Bilbo's post-Hobbit career in the Shire. Uh, the first, in which we know he's pretty much a loner. Remember that reference to how he never had any really close friends until some of his younger nephews began to grow up, right? Um, yeah, so until really Frodo's generation comes through, Bilbo's still kind of a loner. So Tony and I were like, you know, this would actually really fit to say... Yeah, so during Bilbo's early period, he travels around still quite a bit. Um, goes to Rivendell. Go, you know, we can have him go to Erebor, right? It's fine. And then once that younger generation begins to grow up, and he begins to be like, he basically shifts from being the sponge absorbing as much of this lore and learning as many things as he can to now I'm going to be the teacher, right? Now I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to pass these things along to the younger generation. And we see him doing things like making up the obvious teaching poem about, uh, Gilgalad that Sam, that he taught to young Sam, right? And which young Sam memorized exactly as I think Bilbo meant him to do, right? Possibly assigned him to do in fact. Um, so, 
so yeah, the, to me that would really um, that would really work, I think. So anyway, the point is though we're still well within the framework there, right? Uh, seven years after the Hobbit. So yeah, uh, what do you guys think? So people who are listening, would, do you want Bilbo there? Well, okay. So I'll, I'll ask that question and let you guys answer. In the meantime, let me think about what would be the benefits. Of, I mean, apart from its being awesome, what would be the benefits of having Bilbo there? Um, one. Um, okay. One benefit that I can immediately think of. I think that Bilbo could be a benefit. I'm not saying he's absolutely needed for this purpose, but one benefit I think that would come from having Bilbo there is having him be sort of a voice for reconciliation, right? Um, Reconciliation, like the... And forgiveness, right? Like, not only let's get together and, like, agree not to kill each other, but... Um, let's actually establish a community of peace and harmony. That's not really a culture that most of these other people are part of, right? I mean, the dwarves certainly don't have that as a primary cultural feature, right? Um, Nor really do the elves. The elves are perfectly willing just to live aloof from people. So this idea of like, hey, let's join in community with the local folks, that's not what elves always do. I mean, how many people in the Shire even know that there are elves that like living and traveling straight through the Shire? Most of them never even see them. And the elves are fine to leave it so. So elves are actually historically not very good at living in community with their neighbors. Um... So it's not going to come. That's not you know the the impetus for that. It's not going to really come from the dwarves for, for again for like forgiveness and commun and real community. That's not going to come from the dwarves. It's not going to come from the elves. We could make that come from Bard. Like we could just make that a thing that he insists on. But I think it would be really kind of fun uh, to have. Um, it, it it would be really kind of fun to have Bilbo there um, as a as a sort of a voice for that. Um, uh, and, and kind of Bilbo, like Bilbo supporting Bard uh, in that way. Cause also remember um, Bard's character, as we saw it, he's not exactly the most warm and fuzzy guy. Right. Um, and it would be a little bit weird for like, you know, Bard with the grim voice and the pessimistic outlook, you know, to suddenly be the one who is like, come, my friends, like, let us all, like, forgive each other and live in harmony. Um, it's, it's, again, I'm not saying it's impossible. We can, we could totally do it. But Bilbo could be handy for that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think we need Bilbo either. I mean, need would be a strong word, right? Um, I'm just thinking instead of like, would he be useful? What I would not, what what I would want to make sure of, let me be even more explicit. I wouldn't want to bring Bilbo in just for a kind of either like comic uh, relief or for, you know, just sort of empty headed fan service, you know, in the sense of like, Hey, here's Bilbo. And that's cool. Right. Um, If he's there, he would need a, a real role, a really important role. Um, and uh, uh, Marie, exactly. I agree with you about Eregion as a counterexample of elves living in community with their neighbors. But that's the kind of the exception that proves the rule, right? The fact that everybody, like, it's commented on, right, that Eregion was a major exception. Like, that did not, that was not usual. That's exactly, that's exactly sort of my point. Um, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I would think Bilbo would take part in the storytelling, story swapping, and he'd keep them honest. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, uh, didn't quite go down that way, Dwalin. Yeah. Uh, you know? And, <laughs> ooh, actually, okay. Yeah, Trish, that's a wonderful point. Bilbo is the story lover, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. Both the lover that's... of telling stories and the lover of hearing stories. And especially if we set Bilbo up, uh, Tony, along the lines that you and I were talking about, you know, he's still in his, you know, early phase. His yeah. early phase. His like, I want to learn all of the lore of the old days that I can, right? I'm, I'm going oh, yeah, on because yeah. like someday I'm going to edit the Silmarillion, man. So like, and I'm going to translate it, you know, for the, for the Hobbit. So, um, you know, I'm, uh, this is a research field trip for me as much as it is, you know, a, 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 so, because one of the things, if we want to have real a real storytelling dynamic, that is not just them telling stories about the Battle of the Five Armies, but them thinking back to the stories of the first oh, age, right. to the season four material, right. Bilbo sure. could be a really cool impetus for that, right? He could be oh, the yeah. one who keeps, them, keeps bringing them back to history, right? Um, right. And, uh, and it would make most sense. It would be frankly awkward for, you know, like... Thranduil and you know Dwalin to be having an argument, right? Uh, and have one of them be like, "Okay, well, you're totally wrong, and I'm going to prove you're wrong, Dwalin, by telling you the story of like that time back in Doria." I mean, that, that would be just kind of weird. But Bilbo, of course, has this much more natural kind of like, "Wait a second, wasn't there? Didn't 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 something like this happen before? You know, like isn't there? Somebody uh-huh. tell me the story of the like. I'm I'm really interested in this story. Um, He's uh, going to have to have ink smudged fingers and have his his quillen pen. You know, yeah, quillen paper with him all the time. Yeah, I mean, I I I I, I actually yeah. The more I the more I'm the more I'm thinking that the more I really like the way that Bilbo would work, would make the whole storytelling angle much more natural. Yeah, because they're not going to tell know, stories to each other, but they might tell they yeah. might both tell stories to Bilbo. Right, and also that sort of sets the thing because he is pretty fixated on this book. I mean, you know, it, it's not like said a whole bunch, but you kind of see it in retrospect. Right. You know, when you get it from him that gosh you know to put that together that he had to be pretty like obsessed about right. gathering the lore together and writing it so this exactly. is perfect exactly opportunity. Yeah. okay no i like that all right i'm totally talking myself into bilbo now um all right i won my salary yeah <laughs> that's, that's it that's good uh <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Now, I still would want to make Bard the kind of reconciling force, but again, I mm-hmm. personality-wise, it doesn't seem to me like he'd be the one who would be. I mean, he he is enough of a like, you know, I am uh, f- tough but also fair, you know, kind of um, element to him that I could see him. I could see him making some strong arguments for saying, you know, look, you guys need to let this stuff go, right? Um, I mean, I could see him showing some tough love to both the elves and the dwarves to try to bring them around. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. I love this because we get to see Bard. You know, we yes. get to see Bard. Yes. Besides in Bard's story. character would be, would yeah. be really cool. Um, and seven years, uh, we should get, um, uh, we should get his kid too, right? Oh yeah, he'd be like a little boy. I mean, a, you know, he'd be little, right? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. He would still be. I would. Th- I mean, it depends on if we want to have him born before or after. You know, the right. Battle. 
Um, right. We don't know how old Bard is at the time of the battle, of course, but he's obviously not. It's not. Like I always thought he was kind of in his thirties. I guess. Yeah. I yeah. Me too. Me too. So yeah. Um, well, yeah. that's true. I mean, his kid could be a teenager, you know, yeah. at the time. I wouldn't put him past teen years, but yeah. No. Yeah, I don't think I would either. Um, we would continue the. Well, you, so we of... put him in his. He'd probably be in his early forties by this time, and I mean, you've got. So they'd be the age maybe of one of your sons. Yeah. Yeah. But see, that would that would that would put us also in the perpetuating the bizarre cycle of Tolkien's mortal men waiting like mortal kings and leaders waiting forever to procreate um, <laughs> like by medieval standards, like why it is that I mean, it was Chris Pearson who first pointed this out to me. I'd never really thought about it before, but Chris Pearson, who pointed out um like, why on earth does Theodred have no yeah. heir? He has no excuse. The dude is in his 30s when he dies. Like, yeah. and he's not even married. Like, shame not on married. him. Shame yeah. on yeah. Theodred for not being married and having kids before he's 30. Uh, like, if the if the li- if Theoden's line dies out, it's his fault. <laughs> Come on, he's not doing his job yeah. as the That's heir. True. Um, like, That's Amir, true. Adred, Faramir, like, all of them are Faramir unmarried. Faramir and Boromir, they're all bachelors. Yes, yes. There was at least talk about getting Boromir married, but I mean, about time. I mean, it's like, <laughs> seriously, like, these dudes should be turning out kids before they're 20. You know, like, That's like true. time's That's a waste in folks. Um, but anyway, yeah, so, but but again, by having Bard having kids, I mean, I didn't have, you know, well, my oldest son, Nicholas, was not born until I was almost 30, so which, yeah, again, in medieval point, terms, yeah. is like, that's you know, true. waiting until my middling years to begin having kids. Well, we'd have to, we also want to, because it's Brand in the, in the he's the, isn't it his son or his grandson that's it's, in the... It's his grandson, uh, Brand, uh, yeah. Okay. yeah, Bane is his okay. son, yeah. That's right, that's right. So maybe he is, maybe he should be in his, like, 20s. Yeah, you we, know. Can, we can have him and, be. And it's, yeah, it's of merit to talk about now because he'd be in this frame. So yeah, and true, he doesn't get any play because he's long gone by the time the Lord of the Rings comes along. You're right, right, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was just on this something like, hey, we could like, uh, like Ben could get married. <laughs> like, we could we could marry him off. <laughs> Why not? That and use this uh, celebration as a great time to do yeah, it. You know, uh, yeah, we yeah, could throw yeah. a wedding. So there's a wedding we could throw if you wanted to do a wedding. <laughs> if it came up, if we decided in a particular episode that a wedding frame That's might be kind cool. of fun. Well, uh, you know, we are going to be doing Colborn and Galadriel's relationship, right? In this, we season. are. Yeah, we are going to have some wedding issues there. there. Could... Yeah. Now, Marie is thinking that Ban would be a child. I can see that. I mean, I can easily imagine, especially like. Um, again, like Bard hardly seemed like the life of the party, uh, you know, when he was living in Esgaroth. Uh, so, like, it's not hard for me to imagine that Bard would have had a hard time finding dates. And it's not like he was a leader or a king, you know, who needed an well, heir. Well, this is true. It wasn't that he needed an heir at all. Right. Exactly. I mean, so the idea that, you know, Bard only became, you know, the most eligible bachelor in Rovanian after the Battle of Five Armies <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Uh, and... <laughs> that, that, uh, and so that so to have Ban be only like six years old or something, five or six years old, would absolutely um, uh, would absolutely that, that, that works. Like that makes sense. But he loved him even before he became popular. Right. It, it, well, that's exactly it. I mean, do we want we because we, we could do that either way. <clears throat> I mean, we could yeah. have him have a wife and kids. You know, who survived Erebor or sorry, Esgaroth. Um Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, for that matter, we could have it be Bard's wedding. We do at this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, oh good, man, Finally yeah, again. There. Then he, then he would be like on the full Theodred path at that point. That's uh, right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Hey, oh, he's turning forty. Oh, good. Well, he's, he's... I don't know. I'm a little bit mercenary about this. My feeling about it is what's going to work for the story. In other right. words, you know, what's going to work for what we need to be tying to in right. our main story. Right. You know, right. We are going to get um, we are going to get, of course, a wedding uh, in the main, you know, the Galadriel and Kelborn wedding, which is a big deal. Um, but it's the peril to that needn't be a wedding. Right. I mean, no, is, right. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. yeah. The dynamics of the Galadriel and Kelborn story as we're contemplating them are much more about like forgiveness and healing than they are about. Right. Um, right. They are about romance, per se. Of course. On the other hand, so far we don't have any females in the frame, which isn't – there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying. It's kind of hard <laughs> when you're dealing with the old Hobbit cast, you know. Um, Although, for all we know, there may be female dwarves walking around, right? I mean, <laughs> right. we're not Yes, yes. And there's no reason we can't bring the female dwarves out to the party, right? Surely they would come out from underground for I an event like this? So. So, I, I would mean, think so. There, and there will be females running – I mean, there's going to be females – in the group, in the, you know, extras. I mean, they're going to be doing things, so yeah, we don't need sure. to, like, stretch ourselves. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so. No, no, I, I I agree with you. So, yeah, so I think, I don't know, I don't have a strong feeling either way. I mean, I think either a child, you know, or maybe even a tween. Bard um, would certainly have a queen by now, one way or another. Bard is yes, obviously going to have a queen by now. Would. So that certainly gives us a female character, like, an obvious justification to introduce a female character who was not That's introduced true. in the Hobbit, right? We don't have to, um, we don't have to just sort of hatch a new female character uh, from scratch. I mean, again, like Bard will have had a wife, so there we are. Um, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, so, um, but yes, Bard is the host of this celebration, um, and. Uh, so yeah, this is going to be having him be uh, the. Even, I don't think that having Bilbo come in with the dynamic that I was suggest the storytelling dynamic. You know, have him be the impetus for the storytelling, um, as well as sort of this voice for forgiveness and real community. I don't think that that undermines Bard's role because Bard's Bard is still the one who is like literally bringing everyone together. Like they. Um, because both of them, Bard has established good relationships with the dwarves in the last seven years, right? That they've been living together. Bard and the Elven King have been buddies since the Battle of Five Armies, right? So uh, neither one of them, neither the dwarves nor the elves, would have answered the invitation of the other, as I said before. Um, but both of them are willing to answer Bard's invitation. So Bard is the only reason that, you know, Bard and the Men of Dale are the only reason that this celebration is happening at all. This multiracial celebration is happening. The dwarves would doubtless be holding their own ceremonies, and I'm sure they already, they actually still are holding their own private ceremonies, because they would, right? Um, uh, but but Bard would still be the center point, even if then Bilbo comes in and has it. And I kind of like this idea of Bilbo and Bard having some moments, right, where the mm-hmm. two of them are kind mm-hmm. of like allies on the, you know, Bard is the one who, as the host and the king, uh, you know, the local king and everything, he is kind of like dealing with them as peers and 
even in a sense above them because he's their host, right? Um, so there's a certain degree of authority he has because it's his house that they're that they're squabbling in. So he has therefore the moral standing to tell the Elven King and and you know the dwarves to knock it off if they start like you know arguing with each other in his house. Um, so he's kind of coming from above. Bilbo is kind of coming from below, and so the two of them being uh, kind of allies, you know, and kind of working. It wasn't to a help build joke, was it? What? That wasn't a height joke, was it? That wasn't a height joke. No, that wasn't a height joke. <laughs> As I'm sure okay, Randall so is taller than Bart. But. I'm sure, I'm sure. So I regretfully am going to have to back at, at, at a client request. I hate to do this. Oh, but right, you've got to back out. Right. I do want to say one thing before I go. There must be toys at this celebration. Toys. Oh, marvelous toys. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Uh huh, and, and with Bilbo taking notes. <laughs> with Bilbo taking notes, absolutely, absolutely, right. yeah, yeah. Yes. Um. Uh. And and also, I would insist on uh, Bilbo using the phrase "a party of special magnificence" at some point <laughs> in the frame. That would seem to make sense. Absolutely, it has to happen. Yeah. Has so to having happen. this actually be a foreshadowing of Bilbo's own party, or like the model for Bilbo's own right. party. Right. It's kind of fun, right. actually. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a wonderful suggestion. Okay. Thanks, Trish. Thanks. See you next time. Okay. All right. Now, we're not stopping. We're going to keep going. Trish has got to bow out, but we're going to keep going here. So um, now here's here's one of the other issues, then, that I'm thinking. One of the other issues with the frame is we need an eyewitness. Thranduil, I don't think, will work for that. Um, because Thrand... So, Thranduil is a comparatively young elf. Um, at some point, we're going to need to introduce his dad, Orifer. Um, but I don't think... Um, I don't think we... I don't think that we um, can have him... Because we, we weren't going to introduce him um, at least not until much, much later. I could imagine introducing a young Thranduil perhaps in the fall of Doriath, but I don't think before. And his, even his father Orifer, I would think, would probably only be introduced there. I- I'm thinking Thranduil might even wait until the Second Age. Um, so Thranduil himself cannot be, um, uh, can't be our, 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 our living memory. Uh, of the first age are like chief storyteller. Dwarves can tell like of dwarvish traditions. They would know better, for instance, the story of the dwarves and the petty dwarves. Um, and of course, uh, some lovely elf dwarf conflict there, right? As they're telling the stories of those, like the, you know, the, the Nargathron story and the interactions between the elves and the dwarves. And they would have some different takes on that. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, sorry. Yeah, so we're looking at some of these things. Okay. Um, right. Sorry. Murray was reminding me to advance to the next slide because a lot of this stuff is here. Yeah. Um, so, again, I think it's important. We've got elves, right? We need a living memory. Um, so I was asking myself, uh, Murray and I were talking about this this past weekend, and uh, um, I was asking myself, okay, we, we need an elf of Mirkwood to have been there in Beleriand. So I was trying to think, who could it be? Um, we need a named elf. My first thought was, bear with me here. What if we invented a female wood elf, right? <laughs> just, just kidding. I was te- totally tempted, by the way, totally tempted uh, to uh, uh, to go there just out of spite. Um, but uh, but I'm 
but I'm but I'm I'm totally not going to do that. Um, and yes, Phil, it can't be Cyros because he doesn't make it right. Uh, he definitely doesn't make it. Um, so here's here's the idea. We need a named character who can be still living with Thranduil and would be older than Thranduil. So he needs to be a kind of mentor advisor figure to Thranduil, therefore, logically. Um, we have very little to work with as far as... Um, we have very little to work with as far as uh, named elves. I mean, Tony, you're right. Galleon the butler is our only other option there. Um, and I'm not a big fan of that idea. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'd kind of rather come at it from the other direction. Um we can have Galleon the Butler come in at some point, but I don't want to bring in... I don't think Galleon the Butler is a big enough character to come in much sooner than the battle, the War of the Last Alliance, essentially. I mean, that's... We'll bring in Galleon the Butler then, but I can't see having him do... Uh, um, uh, uh, seeing him come in before then. Um, one suggestion that's been made a few times uh, in... Uh, on the discussion boards by Fay Livrin is Celeborn's brother. Celeborn had a brother, or at least Tolkien at one point speculates about uh, a Celeborn having a brother, but he never gets written into any narrative anywhere at all. Um, and I found this a kind of an interesting idea. So here, bear with me here. Here's my train of thought here. What if Celeborn's brother... Um, and no, it's not Elmo. I have said again, I, I am not changing my mind. We are not having Elmo in the story. No elf shall be named Elmo as part. That's like my tiny little version, right? Of um, uh, of of like Christopher Tolkien's "No adaptation of the Silmarillion will be made while I'm alive." While I'm alive, right? As long as I draw breath, there will be no elf named Elmo uh, in film film. So there we are. Um, um, and uh, Phil, I'm totally okay with Rog, but not with Elmo. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, Galathil is the name of uh, of uh, of Celeborn's brother. Um, and, but anyway, okay. So again, here's my here's my here's my train of thought here. Again, it needs to be somebody old, right? So somebody who was around. My first thought was to think about, are there any of the named elves currently in Beleriand that we're talking about that we could repurpose in this way? You know, somebody who could survive the events of the First Age and end up in Mirkwood with Thranduil. And I had a really hard time thinking of anybody there because most of the people we know where they die. I mean, like if you go through, it's got to be a Doriath elf. I mean, I think that seemed fairly like somebody associated with Doriath. Like, uh, like it can't be a Noldo, right? That's obviously impossible. So all of the Noldor are out, which means we only have a handful of options, right? We have the Sindar options, and we have only had two named green elves. Well, three named green elves, including Lenway, originally. Um, Denethor's dead, and Cyros is the only other, and he's going to go, right? So, ne- uh, neither of those obviously are, uh, are options. One of them's obviously dead. So, and Kyrdin's folk, Murray, I agree, they would also theoretically be candidates, um, but we have very few named ones of those. That was, those are actually... The the two that I was thinking of, um, 
uh, like my, my very, very first thought was what about like uh, Galdor or uh, Arrestor, right, um, from, from, from the Council of Elrond. Uh, but the thing is, again, they, 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 one of them ends up attached to uh, Círdan and the other ends up attached to Elrond, right? So they kind of don't do any good. We'd have to repurpose them. We'd have to steal them away from the roles that they're actually given in The Lord of the Rings and say, oh, no, like they're in Mirkwood instead. Um, yes, they travel around. So you could be like, well, Aristor was in the uh, was in Mirkwood like during that time. But now, since then, he's moved to Rivendell whatever. Anyway, so I, I, it's possible. It's possible. Um, but I kind of like the Celeborn's brother idea um, for a couple reasons. Reason number one, um, he is old, right? I mean, Celeborn, we've made Celeborn into a Quivian and elf, so he could have a long perspective on this. And so he would be super useful um, having somebody with that long a perspective would be very useful, not only because he would be able to tell the stuff that was happening there in Doriath and whatnot, but he would also remember... Like, he would have known Ale back in the day, right? We also had Ale at Quivian, and you may remember. So um, he would, like, remember some of the Avari. He would remember Ale. He might have, you know, well, there's no reason we you know, couldn't say that he knew Ale personally. So it gives him the opportunity to be a source for almost all of the Elvish stories that we need to tell uh, in this uh, season, which is attractive by itself. Um, here's the other thing. Um, my other um, uh, my other suggestion uh, my other suggestion here is that oh, sorry, I just saw this. Tony's suggestion the female elf whose name you can't remember from the children of Hurin who defended Turin. Nellius? Isn't that her name? Correct me if I'm wrong, those of you who remember more clearly. Nellus. Okay, I know it's close. Nellus, yeah. That's an interesting idea, Tony. Um, it doesn't feel right, though. Here's why it doesn't feel right to me. Uh, it doesn't feel right to me because of the role that she has in the court. If Nellus were a Quivian and elf. She would have a certain stature in Doriath, which Nellis clearly does not have in the text. Um, yes, uh, childlike is exactly right. Um, I, I was going to say she seems young and is treated like she's young, um, but you're right. It's more than, uh, Marie, it's more than young. It's childlike, right? Um, yes, I think that she should be a quite young elf. Um, that seems to fit the character that she's given um, uh, uh, much better. Now, we could have Nilla survive, right? Um, but but again, I just, uh, I'm not sure. It could be made to work. It could be made to work. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, I'm thinking she's... Well, really young at the time of Turin's story. Um, I... Okay, so Tony, here's what I'm thinking here. I want to preserve Nellis's youth. I would like to make Nellis young by Elvish standards, by almost anybody's standards. Um... One of the really interesting possibilities for the Nellis-Turin story 
um, or the the Nellis Turin chapters of the Turin story, I should say. Um, every other example, almost every other example of elf human romance, um, with the exception, well, no, not with the exception of Andreth, all of them, right, are the elf is great, high, and experienced, and the human is young, you know, and like reckless and naive. Um, like that's how it works, right? Um, the Nellis and Turin story is like the only example that I know of an elf human love affair, like, you know, uh, whether it's requited or not, um, you know, love interest, I should say, perhaps, in which the elf is like the junior partner, right? Turin has stature that Nellis does not have. Nellis looks up to him. Has that ever happened? Do we have any other, uh, you know, elf human love interest where it's the, the, the elf that's kind of looking up to the human as like the senior party, right? Um, you know, uh, that... Um, uh, that doesn't um, that doesn't really seem to me like it uh, would it doesn't seem to me like it would fit um, or, or it doesn't seem to me like it fits anything else I, that is, it seems to me like the only time that that happens and uh, that's interesting I like that so I mean I'm thinking having um uh I'm thinking of having uh the Nella story. I want to preserve that. And so I want her to be young, like maybe even not of age by Elvish standards, right? Um it could be like that could be why she's not taken seriously. Cause she's like in her thirties or something. Um and therefore not even fully mature by Elvish standards. Um, so she's like, so when she comes and testifies in Turin's trial, it's like bringing in the testimony of like a 12 year old or something, or, you know, a 10 year old. Um, now again, it's not exactly a 10 year old because she's, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not wanting to make the Turin Nellis thing creepy. Um, but there is, there is like a hero crush thing that's kind of going on. Anyway, the point is I want to explore that. Um, so, and I, so I want Nellis, I, th- I think Nellis should be legitimately, genuinely young. I.e., she's not born yet in season four, I think. Um, but that's a really interesting suggestion, Tony. I hadn't thought of that. She certainly is a Doriath-named character that we're going to want to preserve. Um, okay. All right, Tony, I, I, I am not sufficiently disciplined to resist that particular tangent. What would Nellis's future be? She lives, right? We could always kill her off in the fall of Doriath, right? That won't be hard if we wanted to, but we could make her survive. Um, who could she... Who could she be? Would we want to... Would we want her to survive? Could we have a role for her later on? We could, Tony, we could make her somebody's wife. Yeah, we could make her, we could Thranduil's wife, Legolas's mom. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Um, sorry, I'm thinking of Thranduil having issues, you know. Um, 
but Thranduil would not have personally known Turin. So... It would make Thranduil's wife older than he, but that's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. But fortunately, we don't have to decide that right now. Uh, we, we have several years before I have to make a firm decision on that. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Let's uh, uh, let me move on from that tempting tangent to invent a, 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 a later story for Nellis. Um, okay. I like how this is shaping up. So anyway, oh, so by, by, I was I was enumerating the reasons I like Celeborn's brother for this role. Um uh, the other thing, so here, here, here was my proposed story for Celeborn. So, like, we don't want to make Celeborn's, we don't want to invent a character like Celeborn's brother, which, again, we're sort of inventing, and we're completely inventing in the sense that we know nothing about him apart from the, the fact that he was speculated to exist and was given a name. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, we, oh, Phil, do I like Nellis for this role? No. Yeah, no, no, I don't uh, I don't like Nellis for this role at all. Uh, I, I like her to be uh, uh, not yet born uh, before the events of season four happen. So, okay, all right. Um, but uh, hang on. Um, right, the brother. Um, if we have to invent a character, <clears throat> I don't, I would not want Caliborn's brother just to be living in Doriath with Caliborn and be like, hi, I'm like Caliborn's plus one, right? Like, that's lame. Um he would be like it would, he would feel like a duplication, you know, if we were just if we just kind of shoehorned him into Doriath. So here was my thought: What if Celeborn's brother is a green elf? They're old, right? It happened. What if the two of them left Quiviannon together? Celeborn's brother decides to follow Lenway. Celeborn decides to follow uh, uh, Elway, right? Uh, and they keep they're both they're both Teleri, right? So I mean they're both brothers. Um, but they choose different paths back in the season two choosing of paths, right? Um, so Celeborn's brother having going with Lent, so he can come in. Remember, here's another here's another factor that really made this idea attractive to me. We had Denethor and Cyros. We killed off Denethor and Cyros has been taken to Doriath. So we've got no named green elves in Osirian, right? Green elves are still in Osirian and they're still going to play a role, right? Baron is going to have a relationship with them. Treebeard is going to have a relationship with them. They're going to come in, obviously, in the battle with the dwarves there. Um, we need somebody to deliver the line about being unfriends with the men as they come over, right? Somebody needs to be sitting there talking to uh, to Finrod Feligund, saying, could you please inform the men that we are their unfriends, right? Um, we totally... Um, we totally need to do that, right? We so we so we need a green elf, essentially, right? We need somebody. I think um, we can't just have those, you know, Baron interacting with Finrod, interacting with the men, interacting with like, you know, some I don't know, like completely generic unnamed green elves, right? So I think we're gonna want a named character to be uh, the sort of totally laid back non-decentral, you know, the sort of decentralized leader, or at least sort of spokesperson for the Green Elves of Osirian. They don't take a king, right? They don't have a... Uh, they, nobody takes Denethor's place. But we need somebody to show up on screen to talk, right? Somebody who can be at least, as I say, the spokesperson for the Green Elves um, in Osirian. Um, Celeborn's brother could do that, right? So we he would fill a role in the later story, right? Um, he would know 
of the events because he's Celeborn's brother. And in the later ages, he's going to have... He doesn't have to be personally involved. He could be at the Merith Adderthad. Why not? He could come. Right? We could have some green elves show up and he could lead them. You know, he could be among them anyway um, uh, at, you know, the, 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 the Feast of Reconciliation. So that's fine. And, um, uh, and yeah, so we could have him tangentially involved in some of the events, but more importantly, connected uh, having close connections, because remember, by being Caliborn's uh, brother, there's all kinds of reasons why he would know all the Noldor stories, too, right? Because he would have hung out with Goadriel and Caliborn, especially if he lives in Mirkwood, like in the Third Age, he's living in Mirkwood, and they're living down in Lothlorien. It's not so far, right? I'm sure he comes to visit occasionally, right? Catch up on old times. So he would know. So, so there is there is somebody there is somebody who would know who could know everybody. He could know Ale. He could know the what's going on with the Green Elves. He can know what's going on with the Sindar. He can know what's going on with the Velothrim. He can know what's going on with the Noldor. Right? Um, he has all the angles as far as that is concerned. Um, uh, he'd be at uh, Kelborn and Galadriel's wedding. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. Why not? Um, so. Anyway, so having him be there, but be, uh, again, he'd be, he'd be one of the Green Elves. And then remember, of course, it would make sense that he would end up with Randul, whose people are Green Elves, right? Um, so we're going to need, obviously, to invent a story, which I'm thinking, of course, is going to be a story of how Orifer and uh, Galathil, um, Kelborn's brother, get together, right? The two of them should become friends and allies. Um, and that, and so the, he, that's why he ends up going with Orifer and supporting Orifer. And he would therefore, you know, like, you know, the question, which sometimes people ask me about things like, so why is it that the Sindar go back and rule this, the, are ruled by the, are, you know, rule the Sylvan elves, right? Why is it that you've got all these Sylvan elves being ruled by this like Sindar ruling family? Um, how did that happen? Galathil is how that happened, right? You know, that I think that he would be a big part of why that came to happen. Um, so we could, it, it make, to me, it makes all kinds of sense uh, having him involved here. Um, having him involved, to me, actually solves a bunch of problems. It seems to me the perfect solution to the eyewitness question. Um, uh, sets things up interestingly later on, solves some future problems like again, who's the dude actually in conversation with Baron and with Finrod um, uh, uh, so I think this is uh, I think this is cool, so I love this idea um, so that's my concept, have, bringing in uh, uh, Celeborn's brother now question there are some people who might be hostile to this suggestion. Uh, and I don't know if I have, uh, if I have helped make Faye Liverin happy by, uh, uh, taking up her suggestion, I might undo that happiness by this suggestion, perhaps. Um, is there a reason Celeborn's brother couldn't be a girl? I mean, do we need... If we're going to invent a new character like this, is there a reason it needs to be masculine? I'm not sure I see a good reason. I mean, it's not like Celeborn's brother is, like, super canonical, right? I mean, he's kind of extra canonical. Tolkien never wrote a story about him, right? Um, okay. 
He's meant to be Nimloth, Nimloth's father. Okay. So we want to insert him into the family tree. And so his... Okay. Maria, I would accept genealogy as a reason. I said, is there, do we have a reason to make him a boy instead of a girl? Uh, or a reason not to make him a girl? Genealogy is a reason. That's a reason. Is it a sufficient reason? Well, maybe it is. Yeah. No, I mean... One problem with doing film film on Friday mornings is that I'm almost always... <laughs> so, um, I don't get a lot of sleep during the weeks because uh, I do a lot of my work at nights and I uh, get up early in the morning to take my kids to school. I usually try to catch up on sleep on Saturdays. Like, Saturday morning is usually when I sleep in to, like, catch up on sleep. So Fridays, I'm often a little fuzzy. And one of the consequences is I'm having... Uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm having one of my fuzzy moments, uh, which I'm going to attribute to sleep deprivation. Help me with um, um, uh, Nimloth's role in the genealogy. Like, yeah, couldn't he, couldn't couldn't it be Nimloth's mom? Is there a reason we can't have that? Do we know? Yeah, Nimloth is Dior's wife, right? That's what I was remembering. But I'm like, we don't we don't actually know either of her parents, do we? It's not like we know her mother, and therefore she needs a she needs a father. Okay, right, fine, fine. So let her be Dior's, uh, let her be Dior's mother-in-law instead of Dior's father-in-law, right? Let's. It's okay, right? Okay, so genealogy is a reason, but in this case, the genealogy wouldn't seem to mandate it. So, um, yeah, and kind of fun, isn't it? Right? I mean, think of that. Think of what... Like, we could give Bilbo a moment, right? When Bilbo realizes that this is Elrond's what? Great-grandmother? Or something like that, right? I mean, anyway, it's, it would be kind of cool, right, for him to, like, to have this moment where he realizes... Um, th- you know, this character whom we might need to rename uh, with it some other tree name. Um, but uh, anyway, to, to, to have um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if we, to, to have that moment where Bilbo realizes that this is a person who is in the direct lineage, right, of Elrond and Elros. Um, uh, because of course he or she is very low key Historically speaking, right? This would be one of the things. Remember, this is the like non-leader of this sort of benignly anarchical society of the green elves of Alcyrian, right? Who don't take a leader. Um, so, um, you know, that's like the culture, right? Um, uh, Galathiel would make it feminine. Okay, sure. Okay. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, so I I would I would suggest I'd be interested to see what people on the discussion board think about giving Celeborn a sister instead of like turning Celeborn's non-canonical brother into a sister instead. Um, I, I just on the principle that if we're going to be inventing characters and bringing them in, you know, uh, I'm not saying they all have to be uh, women, but that seems like a. a a good opportunity. Um, yeah, Tony was saying it's why you like Nellis. I know, I, I get that. And that's why I really paused over that, Tony. I mean, I had my, my first reaction was like, no, it can't be Nellis. Uh, and I had to kind of think that through to make sure that there was a good reason. And I do think there's a good reason why it can't be Nellis. But that was interesting, I think. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. All right. Um, yeah. So, so I like this. I think this works really well. We've got storytelling opportunities. We've got a person who can be a primary storyteller. We're going to get dwarf points of view on this. Um, you know, on 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 you know on the from the point of view of their history, we can have applications of this and uh, talks about reconciliation. But notice, nothing's going to happen, right? We're not we're not going to have a plot heavy frame like we had last season. Right? That was the biggest challenge of last season's frame, is that it was very story. It was a, a, a dramatic story that was happening uh, in the frame. We're not going to have a story. It's going to be a bunch of people talking in different combinations. There will be tensions. There will be issues. There will be an event, um, but it's not going to be... Uh, it's not going to be a a, a a a big plot that's happening. So I think I think this is awesome. I think it's going to work perfectly. I'm super excited about this frame idea, and we'll be talking about this as we go through and making some decisions here. Okay, in the light of that, let's talk about plans for the season. Let me kind of lay things out as because we're going to need to approach this differently. First, let me remind you of how we've approached seasons over the last couple of years. Uh, so the last few seasons that we've done, we've approached like this. We've done a, a sort of a brief. Um, overview planning, uh, a couple brief overview planning sessions at the beginning if there's some other, some set of major issues that we need to hash out before we get started, we do that at the beginning but then we launch into going through episode by episode, you know, so we do an outline then we go through episode by episode, make some adjustments perhaps as we go, but we mostly know and agree upon the general outline before we begin, then we march through one session per episode uh, for all 13 episodes then at the end we do our sort of post-production review of some of the creative work that people from our discussion boards have been contributing. So things like sets and props and costuming and casting and the music and all that kind of stuff that we do there at the end. And then, of course, we also talk about the detailed script outlines. We go back and review those. That's been the shape uh, of this all the way through. Last time I was suggesting that I think we're going to have to do things a little bit differently this time. And ultimately, what it comes down to is that in season four, we're making up more stuff, right? You know, we are entering the part of the Silmarillion where we have fewer events. Um, that is like just, there are fewer things after this. This is just a Valerian and its realms, right? So there are things that occur, but most of the individual stories like the conversations and things and the individual events is, is a lot of stuff that we are having to extrapolate on some of it quite a bit on very little data in particular like the storyline we want to do with the dwarves uh, uh, you know, the dwarves and the petty dwarves especially the story of Galadriel and Celeborn um, which even in all of his revisions about Galadriel and Celeborn we got very little about um, Galadriel and Celeborn getting together 
uh, uh, and sort of the story behind their marriage. So anyway, so there's a lot of work that we have to do just in creating storylines. We last few seasons, we basically had the primary storylines. Um, we had to fill in a lot of stuff in season one, but even that felt different because we still had major events um, uh, mapped out that we knew needed to happen. And it was a question of, you know, there it was like characters we need to introduce, um, but we had more events that we were trying to connect. Um, here we have fewer, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but I, as I said last time, I'm very uneasy about just kind of artificially mapping out an outline because many of these plot threads, uh, these storylines that we're wanting to develop are going to be developing over multiple um, episodes. So here's, here's what I want to do. Here's, here, here's the new plan for the season. Um, starting next session... What we're going to move to is what I suggested last time. I want to talk about each storyline in order, right? Um, and this is still a sort of officially pre-planning. So I want to work out in detail storylines like the Galadriel and Celeborn storyline, right? Let's let's talk about the whole thing. What are the what, what are the things that need to ha- what's the shape of it? What are the things that need to happen? Um, you know the the kind of uh, the kind of moments, the kind of events, right? Uh, that that bring that storyline together. Um, we won't worry yet about like which episode in in the season each event will come in necessarily. We'll just sort of say, you know, here's the here's the outline of this plot of this storyline, right? And what needs to happen there. Um, and then we'll do the same thing for all of the other storylines that we want to follow. Then, having done that, having outlined each individual storyline. Um, we will then go through and assemble stuff into episodes for the whole season. And I think that I, I, I want to try to do, since we will have already discussed the storylines themselves, I think, and of course I may end up be regretting this later, um, I think that we can do multiple episodes per session there because we will have already talked through the storylines, which is usually what we're doing that takes so long in working through each episode. Um, so... Um, uh, I think that we, it should be possible for us to do two episodes per session. So we're going to have, I'm not sure how many storyline sessions. I really don't know how long that's going to take, so I'm not even going to project. We're going to have several storyline sessions uh, for the next few sessions. Then we're going to have episode uh, sessions where we discuss two episodes apiece. But we're going to, in between, we're going to put a separate buffer session. Um, in which we talk about some of the particular creative challenges, theme, frame, casting descriptions and stuff. Here's one of the goals of this. Um, I want to do more work on the front end. Um, One of the things that uh, uh, I sort of realized last season and in uh, conversations with Marie and kind of touching base with um, how things function really uh, uh, among our creative community I want to make sure to give more guidance earlier. Um, so like, for instance, uh, one, one illustration, one example of this is um, casting, right? So last year, when we do the casting episode, um, that's really one of the first times, you, you know, when we go through and we're reviewing the, like the actors and actresses that won the casting elections for each role, it's really one of the first times that I go through and say, well, let's think about like, 
what Caranthier should look like, right? I, I never really thought about it during the season. And then we get to the end, and people make suggestions, and I'm looking at these guys, and I'm like, yeah, none of those guys are Caranthier to me, right? And it's really the first time that I've thought through something like a casting call, right? What should Caranthier look like and be like? What do I want out of Caranthier as, uh, you know, as an actor? And, um, you know, so... Marie was asking me very sensibly, wouldn't it make sense to kind of do that first before we have people nominate and vote uh, on the actors and actresses? And uh, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And in addition, I think um, it would be I think it would be really good for us to do some kind of earlier discussion and um, uh, sort of specific to make sort of some specific uh, calls or sort of assignments to our creative people. Um to be able to so 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 this is what we're going to do in these buffer episodes. So we'll have we'll we'll do the plot lines, uh, the you know our 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 storyline discussions. Then we'll then we'll outline the episodes. We'll bring this stuff together and we'll decide. Okay, here's what we're going to do in episode one and episode two. Then after that, we will have an uh, our in our buffer session. We're then going to look back over episodes one and two, and we're going to identify um, some of those. Um, uh, some of those factors, right? We'll go back and we'll we'll think about any new characters that get introduced in those episodes, any new casting that we have to do, and we'll do our we'll, we'll do we'll do, we'll do our casting call. We'll think about any um, uh, sort of creative issue that comes up there, like to throw a, a random example out that I know will come up: petty dwarves versus regular dwarves, right? What are they going to look like? What should be the difference visually between the, how do we want to represent the petty dwarves versus the regular? Uh, dwarves, the non-petty dwarves, uh, you know, the petty dwarves versus the mountain dwarves. So, uh, anyway, I want to, I want to, I want to take that buffer episode to think through some of these individual details. That way, also, of course, one of the other consequences of this is we don't have to get bogged down in those questions during our episode planning discussions when we're outlining the episodes. Um, uh, yeah, then we can see Brie exactly. Then we'll ha- so we'll have a series of assignments for you, right? Um, as we go along, so we'll do episodes one and two, and then we'll say, okay, from episodes one and two, we, we'll come out of those episodes with lists, right? We want pictures of these things, right? We want designs for these things. We're going to need musical themes to cover this concept um, or these people. We're going to need, and we can talk about what we want there. We, we're casting for these characters. Um, and so we can be accumulating those as we go along so that it'll be easier when we get to the end of the season to go back and sort of review those lists of things that we asked for and see what people came up with, right? And other suggestions that uh, um, that people had. So that's the... Uh, that's the that's the plan uh, for those things. It will also give by inter uh, um, by interspersing those those buffer episodes between our discussions. So we'll talk about episode one and two. Then we'll have a buffer episode about that content. Then we'll do episodes three and four, and then we'll do a buffer episode on that content, and so on all the way through the season. This will also give the the script discussion the the script outline team you know, the script writing team um, a little more time. Um, we won't kind of do the outline of the episodes and then sort of say, here, do all this all at once. Um, another thing that the buffer episodes might help with is if we need more time to think through the frame for those episodes, we can also have that spill over. Anyway, it's all kind of flexible, but it's gonna, but in this way it's going to be a little different. Um, and um, I think that we can, uh, uh, we can, we can make that, 
all um, a little bit clearer. My hope is that also we... Well, okay, Script Outline team, I don't know if you guys think we'll be making your job easier or harder. We're likely to do more of the work for you if we, as we're going through and outlining episodes uh, a little more carefully, I think, than we will have in the past. Um, so uh, you'll have less leeway, perhaps, than you might have had in the old days. Uh, I don't know if uh, you will feel in the end that that's a good thing or a bad thing. But um, anyway, it should be cool. So let's think through the storylines. <clears throat> the last thing we need to do uh, before we go here is sort of decide on a list of storylines that we want to cover. And some of these are ones we've already talked about. So the Sindar reaction to the news of the Kinslaying, like that's, that's a, that's a major plot line. Um, and I would put the Galadriel and Celeborn story. It's not quite a, a subplot of that, but it's, 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 in conjunction with that, I mean, the issue of the kinslaying looms large over both of those over both of those things, right? Um, the dwarves and the petty dwarves; those are these are these are obvious ones that we've already talked about. I have no question about those. Ale, I like having an ale uh, line. Now we we're not going to do the full ale plot, the ale and Arthel plot, until season five, of course. Now, but that's okay. We can still. I think we should still introduce him. Um, and especially given his connection with dwarves, that seems to me to be easy enough to do, right? We can think about, um, he's connected to the dwarves. He's connected to Doria through the transaction, um, he needs to have with Thingol. Um, that stuff I think that we can do. Um, but I think it's important that we set up Aeol and the kind of person that he is. He can serve as a foil to many others. I mean, we were talking about this before. He's kind of like Turgon, except he's like the twisted version of Turgon. Um, the one who goes off in isolation instead of going off in community. Um, uh, he's kind of like Thingol, except he's not like Thingol. Right? I mean, so uh, having him there for the sake of of being a sort of a parallel and a kind of cautionary tale, I think is super helpful. But we also want to make sure that when Arathel shows up on his front doorstep in season five, we already have his backstory. We already we know who this dude is. We can't only then be like we can't have her show up at the doorstep of some dude and we're like, yeah. Um, let us explain what's important about this. We told, so the Aeol plot line is not going to be one of our biggest storylines of season four by any stretch. It's going to be one of the minor ones, but I do think that it definitely needs to happen. Um, Sauron, absolutely uh, the villains. We need to have the villain storyline. Um, uh, especially the catch and release elf captive program. I would also add, remember the storyline that we were talking about with Gothmog leading the, um, uh, the, the useless battle, right. That gets fought closer to the middle of the season. Useless from the bad guys point of view, of course, um, the Dagor Aglareb. Um, so we, we need to have that integrated in, um, the concept of the temptation of humans, Right. Um, you know, so like Melkor absenting himself during that time. So uh, those things, those things we need. But it, but I, but I agree, especially this sort of uh, uh, the, the 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 corruption and manipulation of elves, the um, uh, the spell of bottomless dread needs to be deployed. Right. So we uh, um, we we need to work that out. Um, so Fingolfin as High King and the Thanorians, um
I'm tempted to look at the Noldor kind of together. I think we can discuss them together. Um, I mean, they're sort of separate. I don't know. I mean, maybe we can talk about Fingolfin and the Feanorians separately. We definitely need... We we, we threw out some concepts for the Feanorians um, in the last session, talking about Amros especially and the kind of the different dynamics and what Mithros' plan is uh, and his outlook and all that kind of thing. Um, so we can we can do that, um, but we you know we need to we need to take the time and figure out where we're going to be establishing this. I think I want to include Fingolfin as part of this because sort of Fingolfin as High King and his you know so the Feanorians as one part of the picture of where um, like what's up with the Noldor essentially uh, there. Um, particularly since we're going to have um, the Noldor as a whole are going to be related to the Sindar and the news of the Kinsling, right? I mean, that, that, that storyline is going to be important. But remember also, we've got, we've got Turgon and Finrod. We've got to establish Turgon and Finrod. Um, and this it just seems to me part of the whole picture, right? Like Fingolfin as High King. Where is he and what is he doing and what is his outlook? The Feanorians, we talked about a little bit about their internal politics, but we need to think about their continuing relationship with Fingolfin and the others of the Noldor. We need to have... Um, uh, we need to... Turgon and Finrod, right? Um, not only just in the having of their dreams, but we need to establish Nevrast and uh, and therefore develop Turgon's character a little bit and, and you know how does he end up as the center of that particular community. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm thinking... Yeah, Marie, I'm thinking we, we probably consider this as something I like, that Noldor internal stories thread is is kind of the way that I'm thinking of all this stuff. Because, of course, all of this is then related to, um, sort of collectively, all of this connects to, like, the Noldor side of the whole kinslaying um, uh, scandal, right? Um, and how they, the Noldor... Uh, collectively and in differently individually are reacting to Thingol's ban of Quenya and all that stuff. Um, so anyway, um, I think that can all kind of come together. Kierden is a great question. The rebuilding of the um, the rebuilding of the Falas uh you know the cities that which we we destroyed right uh uh in season two uh or season three rather um it can be a thing I'm not sure what I want Kierden to do um I mean obviously he's involved in the Sindar reaction to the news of the kinslaying plot I mean he's part of that story. Do we want Kierden to have a separate story? I'm not sure what it would be. We've already got a lot of storylines in this season. I'm not sure if we need Cured in the Shipwright other than to have, I mean, maybe we can just kind of work that into the Sindar reaction, like work into that the fact that they've reestablished their havens, you know, um, and are continuing their, you know, shipbuilding thing. The other that occurs to me, but again, it's pretty minor, like Cured we do want to reestablish the Green Elves. Um, if we... You know, we brought the Green Elves to the battle in Season 3, and we got most of them slaughtered by the Orcs. And then we brought Cyros 
uh, and probably a, a, a contingent. I would think Cyrus wouldn't be the only green elf uh, in um, uh, in Doriath. That could leave the impression that the green elves are gone, right? We need to make it clear that green elves remain in Osirian. So having Celeborn's sister or maybe brother um, there among them, you know, and their spokesperson and with some of them showing up um, at the Marathadothad, I think that would work. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. But again, that's that's more of a we need to establish a simple fact, namely that there are green elves in Osirian, right? The green elves of Osirian don't have much to do yet, but we'll want them there. Um, we'll want to have established them when the humans come over the mountains, right? Because that's uh, a little bit of a big deal. Um, anything else? Anything else? I um, Oh, yes, there is something else. Luthien. Luthien. We wanted Luthien. More Luthien, right? We need to establish Luthien as a character and give her something to do other than sitting around looking pretty and occasionally dancing. Yeah, Luthien. So what is Luthien doing? Um, I don't know if that necessarily... Tell you what, this is what I want to do. I want to save that one till the end because that might... Um, all of these that I'm putting, Kyrdin, the Green Elves, Luthien, all of those get put at the end because they might we might solve those problems earlier on, right? When we're talking about the Sindar reaction to the news of the Kinslaying and stuff, we may decide that we can settle up uh, Kyrdin, the Green Elves, and maybe even Luthien as roles within those storylines. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, David was saying he pictured Luthien as a diplomat in the last session. Um, yes, I... Uh, um, I was imagining Luthien being at the Marathadarthad in the last sec- in the last session. Um, David, you know what I just thought of? That line, and I—I don't know why I'd never thought about it this way. It's one of those things that I think of, and it seems pretty obvious in retrospect. But um, remember that line that Aragorn delivers when he meets Arwen for the first time. Right, and he and he jokes about Elrond keeping her locked in his hoard. Right, um, uh, like you know, he's like, "How did I not know you existed? Like, how did that happen? I've lived here for years. Like, did Elrond keep you locked in his hoard?" Um, and I never really thought about that as a a sort of um, uh, a sidelong shot at Thranduil, essentially. Right. Uh, or not Thranduil, a sidelong shot at uh, Thingol, sorry, uh, for keeping Luthien locked. Because Luthien kind of does get kept locked up in Thingol's hoard. Uh, or at least that's he tries to do that. Um, and there is a general sense of Luthien not really going out at all. Um, uh, which I don't want to perpetuate. Uh, I, I mean, I, so I kind of want to let her out of the horde, um, especially since, you know, she has like a continental reputation, right? Uh, when she does get out. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, there's reasons why Sauron has heard of her, you know, when he meets her. Um, but I don't know. I, uh, I mean, we've already solved that problem by having her be involved in the thwarting of his spider plan in, in, uh, uh, in Doriath, but anyway, yeah, Luthien. Okay, so we need we need a role for Luthien. So let me see sequence, sequence. 
let's do let's start with the Sindar reaction to the news of the Kinslaying because that's the biggest over our, most overarching plot line all the way through here um, then let's do the dwarves and the petty no no let's do Galadriel and Celeborn then because that's like uh, a corollary to that one so we do the Sindar reaction to the news of the Kinslaying then Galadriel and Celeborn then we do Or, yeah, no. Uh, then we do the Noldor. Um, the Noldor internal plot lines. And by that time, we will have done... Uh, the Sindar reaction and the Noldor plot lines are kind of the biggest, most overarching ones. Um, I, I'm thinking of uh, putting Goadriel and Celeborn in the middle of that because... Or in between those two, because they're so closely connected to the Sindar reaction. Um, yeah. Um... Yeah, so I think I would want to do the Noldor first and then go to the Dwarves and Petty Dwarves and then Aeol, right? Because he would he's distantly connected with that. And then I guess Sauron after that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, I had a brief temptation there to actually talk about Sauron first so that we could use the plot of the bad guys as the kind of framework into which we could fit everything else. But I think we shouldn't do that. I think we should do Sauron after. So yeah, so Sindar as a whole, Galadriel, Noldor as a whole, Dwarves, Aeol, Sauron, and then any other loose ends that we think that we still need to work up. Círdan, Green Elves, Luthien, whatever we don't fit into the other plot lines. Okay, cool. So, um, for next time, um, uh, the schedule, the ne- next scheduled uh, session is November 30th. Uh, there's a non-zero chance. There's always a non-zero chance we might need to reschedule if something comes up. But right now, we're planning on November 30th. Um, and we're going to talk about, we're going to start talking about the Sindar uh, uh, and uh, the reaction to the Kinslang. So we're going to start working through that storyline. Um, this means that what you can be doing in the next two weeks is suggestions uh, along those lines. Don't forget to throw in any suggestions about Luthien or Círdan or the Green Elves that are connected with this as well, because those, I think this storyline is the one that's most likely to include those, of course. Um, so... Yeah, so we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, there's a chance we might reschedule, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen yet. So for now, still tentatively, uh, uh, Friday, November 30th. So that's the Friday after Thanksgiving. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. I can't wait to uh, to dig into things uh, a little bit more. We're now done with our sort of pre-organizational stuff and now going to get into really the meat of our, uh, our storylines for Season 4, which I can't wait to do. So... More on the Sindar and the Kinslaying for uh, next time. Um, oh, okay. Also, a, a brief uh, a brief call for talent here. Um, uh, Philip Menzies, who is our composer, who has been composing music for us uh, uh, all the way through, which is wonderful. Uh, he wants he wants singers. Uh, anyone who would like to volunteer as a singer, he wants to do some choral pieces um, for uh, his. You know, he so he wants some he wants voices. 
to be able to use. Um, and you can see the message board for details. He's, he's, he's written out some details there of what he's looking for. But anyone who would be interesting, interested in volunteer uh, to sing in some of the film film music, um, there, is, there is an opportunity. So uh, get in touch with Philip, and we'll see if we can coordinate that. All right. Thanks very much, everybody, for joining me. I look forward to continuing our discussion. But for now, we'll say thanks for listening. Godspeed.